The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The Lord, you have sent your Son, and we have no need to fear anymore. Our Savior has been born. He lives, he was dead and he lives again, he reigns, he has been born, and he has removed from all those who trust him, from every single person, he has removed all hint of fury, so that you look on us in peace and grace and love and delight, and perfect love like that casts out all fear. Thank you. Hallelujah indeed. And so, Lord, we are your people by your will, by your power. And we're gathered here this morning to hear from you. And we pray, God, would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would you take your word? And would you proclaim it to us? And use it by the power of your spirit to make us into your people More like your son. Use it to transform us and to conform us to his image. What we have before us a text that is thousands of years old and yet still lives and expresses to us your desire for what we are to be. And so speak through it today. Open it up to us. Lord, over all of this, Lord, we, we know we're going to look at this and we're going to see our, our failing in it and see what we need to become and, and see how you can make us that. But over all of it, just thank you that you look on us in grace and have accepted us by grace through faith in this Savior who's been born to us. We praise you for that. Give us your, your smile this morning. Change us and grow us and make us what we should be, but give us your smile also and help us to to experience your grace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I read a story in the paper recently about a 40-something-year-old man who has a college degree and lives in a cave down in Moab. He's worked a a couple of jobs after graduation, decided that he didn't want any of that, and he wanted to live a moneyless life, a money-free life. And so he moved into a cave, and that's where he lives. He uh, sustains himself by uh, using the resources that he gathers from behind various restaurants and grocery stores, and he lives off the land, and and all the stuff people throw away at their self-storage units, and and they had some photographs of him, and they interviewed him, and, and he seems to do okay. Now, overlooking the fact that he hasn't actually escaped into a moneyless life, he's living off of the money of other people. He's living in a commercial world, and, and without that, he wouldn't survive. But, but overlooking that fact, he's on to something. Almost. What drove him to this was he looked at money. 
And he noticed the danger of money. And he looked at his own life and saw how he was living for money. To get more money and to save more money and to protect his investments and his resources and and to harbor more of them. Because that's where he was finding his security and his pleasure. And he saw all of that in money and not just in himself but in the world. Nations fight over money. Spouses fight over money. Societies go corrupt, circling, and then go down the drain because of money. He saw all that and said, I'm out. He's on to something. Because that's true in our hearts and in the societies that are made up of lots of hearts. Money is the root of all kinds of evil, is it not? Unfortunately, his chosen solution to the problem, live without money, is entirely inadequate because money is not really the problem. It's the heart that takes the money and does something with it. And he's a well-meaning man, but he seems to have missed that point. Getting rid of money, even if we could do it, isn't going to solve anything. There has to be something that addresses the heart. And fortunately, God has a way of doing that. God also knows what this guy has noticed. And he doesn't call us to eliminate money or to eliminate wealth, but he actually acts to change the human heart, to incline it, to incline us to use money not to inflict pain, but to alleviate it. Not to war over it and try to gather more of it, but to give it away to bless other people. God wants to do that kind of thing in our hearts so that we will then use this tremendous tool, wealth, for good in His world as a blessing to people. He wants to kind of, He wants to create that kind of a community, a new covenant community that views wealth and money like that and then uses it to bless others and tell the truth about God, that God is a blesser of others. That's what we're going to look at today in Deuteronomy chapter 15, which in some ways is really a continuation of last week's sermon out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, and two weeks ago we were in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. And we saw there at the end of that chapter, Moses, speaking God's word to us, Moses touched on the subject of the tithe, the giving of 10% of all of our resources to God. And in that context, we dealt with the tithe as what he's trying to do with it. He's trying to to show us something about God and to create an environment where we are are worshipers of God and we, we grow in the fear of Him. And then He uses that tithe to meet the needs of those who lack resources, the, the Levites and widows and orphans and sojourners who don't have land. God uses the tithe for that. And we saw that in that context. And then we took a little detour to address the subject of giving in general. and saw how in the New Covenant, God actually accomplishes that which He was aiming at in the Old Covenant. Because while he meant to use the tithe, and he meant us to use the tithe to bless other people and to create an environment for worship, it didn't happen in the Old Covenant. But we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and saw how it does happen in the New Covenant as God moves in and changes hearts. So we looked at that, 
And that creates a very nice bridge into this morning's chapter, chapter 15. Dovetails very nicely. Wealth and money within the community of God used as a blessing to others rather than hoarded to ourselves. So that's what we're going to get after here. Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 18. Let me read it, and then I'll pass back through it to make some observations to be sure that we understand it before making a couple of larger points. So in Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 18. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord will God, your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your flesh, threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired servant he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Deuteronomy 15. Verse 1 begins by connecting us to this cycle of life that is established in the fourth commandment. Remember the fourth commandment from Deuteronomy 5? The fourth commandment, essentially, six days you shall work, 
But on the seventh, no. Rest. Lay down your work and rest. Set, one in seven is set apart for you to stop working, lay down the, the implements of work, and turn aside and remember God, remember God, His provision of you, and worship Him. That's what resting is. On the seventh day you do that, and that pattern is established in the commandment. And then in Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11, that pattern is extended from people, one in seven days, to land, one in seven years. So in Exodus, he says, again, 23, verses 10 and 11, he says, On the seventh year, six years you shall sow and gather in the yield, but on the seventh year you will let the land rest, let it lie fallow. You will not, on that seventh year, you will not exact from the land its produce. So let it go. And that word right there for rest, you shall let the land rest, that's the word that's translated release here in 15.1. You shall release the debt. You shall let it rest. This release is a stopping, as verse 2 says, a stopping of the exacting of the debt out of the debtor. So he borrows money, he owes you money, and probably at the end of every harvest, think agriculture, where, where do people receive income in agricultural societies? At the harvest time. So at the end of every year, harvest comes in and you take from him your, your portion of repayment, except at the end of the seventh year, you release it and let it go. Which the NIV, if you have the NIV in your hand, it interprets it to mean that the debt is eliminated. Totally wiped away. Which is a possibility, a possible interpretation. But the text literally says, grant a release. And if you have the more literal ESV, or if you have an NAS and you look at your footnote, it will say that it's literally grant a release. Which could mean totally wiped away. I think, though, that it's more likely that it means lay it down. Just like the one in seven pattern of working and the one in seven pattern of the land, you let it go for a year. To be picked up later. But you let it go for a year, primarily because you think this guy, how is he going to pay it back? If the land's lying fallow, he has no income. So it makes the most sense to me here. You let it lie. When you look at verse 9 and it says, watch that your heart not think, hey, the seventh year is coming up. Obviously that, that would argue, either. it could be argued either way, that you don't, you don't want to watch for the seventh year because, hey, your debt's going to be gone. I mean, you're going to lose it all. Or it could mean that I'm not going to get any repayment in the seventh year. And in a society where we lend interest-free, Deuteronomy 23 says, my money's out of my hands for two whole years, and I'm getting nothing for it. That's a threat, too. So it could go either way, that this release is I let the debt go entirely, or I just let it lie. Either way we resolve that, it's, it's not important because what's critical for us is going to show up as we keep moving through the passage. There's an attitude here that's the important issue that he's getting at. They were not to exact this loan, to release this loan from a brother. It's repeated use of the term brother throughout the text. Not debtor, not slave, but he's called a brother. The text moves from this this formal language of creditor in verse 2, neighbor, to brother. And then that's what's repeated throughout. And it's 
shaping our image here. Who am I dealing with when I lend money? Who's on the other side of this transaction? A brother, which is obviously the language of family. It creates a whole perspective, a compassionate perspective. It's creating deliberately an emotional bond here. This is not a business transaction, creditor and debtor. It's brother and brother. Repeated throughout the passage. We are to have a compassionate, brother-centered mindset in this issue. Emphasized further by the the core of the passage in verses 7 to 11, where the commandments lie. If one of your brothers becomes poor, somewhere within this blessed promised land that I'm giving you, if one of your brothers becomes poor, watch your heart attitude as you engage with him. Double verbs. Do not harden your heart or close your hand. Heart first, and then the hand that follows. Watch your heart, and then the actual behavior. Don't shut your hand against your brother. Your thought must be, on the contrary, what do you need, brother? Verse 8. What, whatever it is, what is your need? And I don't have a thought towards that seventh year, verse 9. I'm not looking ahead. How am I going to get this back? If I give this to him now and the seventh year comes up, I'm going to lose it either totally or at least for a couple of years. I better not do it then. You do not have that selfish heart attitude at all. You say to your brother, as verse 8 says, what do you need? And you open your heart and your hands to him and you lend it freely. Remarkably, If you don't, he'll have a case before God against you. When you have this grudging heart attitude that's looking out for self, he'll cry out to God and God will say, you're guilty of sin. There's no law that requires you to lend. But there is a law from God that requires you to have an open heart and an open hand. And God will say, legally you can do that, But it's sin. Watch your heart. Watch your hands. Verses 10 and 11, then a repetition of verse 8. Open wide your heart. Don't be grudging. Don't be selfish and self-focused, but give freely. Because, middle of verse 10, because in this, the Lord your God will bless you. There will always be poor in the land. You will always have this opportunity to open your heart and open your hands. And when you do, the Lord will bless you. So give freely to your poor brother. Now, there's always going to be poor in the land. That may seem like a contradiction to verse 4. Look back at verse 4. Didn't that say that there will be no more poor among you? Yes, but notice, as you keep reading through 4 and 5, what he's establishing there is an ideal. There's a condition there. There will be no poor among you because I will bless you if you strictly obey the word of the Lord. All that I'm commanding you. He's setting up an ideal. As people walk with the Lord, there may come a time, he says, when poverty will be no more. There will be no poor among you. That's the ideal. But right now, verse 11, there will always be poor among you. And you will constantly have opportunity to deal with them properly. So do so. Open wide your heart. Open wide your hand. 
Well, with there constantly being poverty in the land and with there constantly being the need to, to meet needs and borrow, it's conceivable that somebody's financial situation might get really bad and they might have to sell themselves to you as a financial slave. So verses 12 and following are discussing. And I never mention the word slave. We have to have a little aside here because many of us in our minds automatically picture American slavery. That's not remotely what's going on here. I think it's obvious as we read through that there's an atmosphere in this kind of slavery that would cause a person to say, I love being here. I love this family. I want to be a part of this family forever. That clearly is not the American slavery experience. You've got a totally different thing going on. Even knowing that if I work six years and my debt's canceled off and I'm released and he's going to set me up to, be, to assure that I succeed, I don't want to do that. I want to stay here. That is a, an attitude of remarkable generosity. But if he decides to go, they're also remarkable generosity. Furnish him liberally according to how you've been blessed. Give it to him and make sure that he succeeds. Or that at least he's set up to succeed. You give him out of your flock out of your fields. You give, you give, you give, you give. And at the very end, then, in verse 18, so the Lord will bless you in all that you do. That's the text. All about generosity and giving money, financial interactions within the community of God. Let me try to sum it up with this sentence, and then I'm going to break it apart and make, as usual, two observations. But let me try to give a a summary sentence here. God expects and enables generosity among his new covenant people. So in this new covenant that we're in now, God expects and enables. Those are the the two things I'm going to work on. Two observations are going to be around those two words. He expects and enables. He enables generosity among his people. Let me take the first one of those, the the expectation. Here's the first point. God expects his people to be generous with others according to need. Be sure to get the last part there. We'll, We'll come to that. God expects his people to be generous with others. He commands this. The others, primarily those of the household of faith, but Others, broadly speaking, also expects us to be generous with them according to need. That I think that's obviously the thrust of the passage. Consider those repeated commands in 7 to 11. There's the double command of verse 7 about the heart and the hand. And then he commands the opposite in verse 8. He works right back on it. Don't close your hand, but open your hand and watch your heart. Verse 9, so you don't have a grudging attitude. Verse 10, then give freely without a grudging heart. Verse 11 repeats verse 8, open wide your hand. I mean, it's, it's like backwards and forwards, positively and negatively. What's he trying to say? Pretty obvious. Be generous with your poor brother. Generosity amongst the people of God is clearly what he's commanding here. He expects us to be that way with the brother. And also, notice at the end of verse 11 how the door opens just a little bit. Brother, comma, those who are poor and needy in the land. 
Now he's restating brother, he's, he's rephrasing brother, but when he kicks the door open just a little bit, those who are poor and needy in the land, it should cause us to think, who else is in the land that's poor and needy? And in previous chapters, who have we seen that's also poor and needy in the land? Poor sojourners that God loves and provides for. We've already been told that God loves and wants to provide for poor sojourners who are in the land. So, yes, his emphasis is on brother, comma, and others. We cannot think that God's expectation is only that we be generous towards other Christians. Especially towards those who are in the household of faith, yes, but, comma, others as well. Not only brothers. That's what he commands, and that's the attitude that's aimed at in the specific cases at the beginning and the end of the passage. The, the letting fall of the, the debt, and then the, the, how you treat the slave at the end. In both of those, obviously, generosity is expected. Not a hard holding to something or a, or a brutal treatment of somebody. A, a generous giving attitude. That's the specifics of the, of the chapter, but let's think a little bit behind them. Because what we have here in front of us is civil code. This is civil law for the nation of Israel. We've talked about this a number of times. This is how a nation is supposed to function. We live in the United States of America right now. Under the civil code of the United States, under the civil code of the state of Utah. And, and you can't have slaves anywhere in the U.S. We have specific laws that govern how we, we work lending, don't we? So our civil code is different than this civil code. But the moral code, the moral law that lies behind it, never changes and holds for us today. What's the moral law that stands behind this? Well, how about the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Or stated positively, Remember, all the commandments are stated one way and imply the opposite, so, such that you shall not bear false witness is also you shall tell the truth. You shall not steal is also you shall be generous, you shall bless, you shall give. You shall aid people. Why? Because all the moral law flows out of the character of God. And God Himself is a generous, giving, open-handed, gracious God. It is his character. It's what he's like. He himself is soft in heart and he opens his hand. Is that not how he has dealt with you? Think about it. You ate this morning, probably. You breathe right now. You live on borrowed time, in a borrowed place, with borrowed clothes, in a borrowed house, eating borrowed food. All given by someone. Not by your parents, your spouse, your employer. Given by a generous, open-hearted, open-handed God. He is not grudging or miserly. He does not exact repayment from you. He gives. In remarkable ways. He blesses you every moment of every day in a thousand ways you've never realized. 
You go to work and you earn things. Or a spouse or a parent goes to work and, and, quote, earns things. Those are gifts from God. Which the fourth commandment is intended to remind us of. Fourth commandment sneaks in here as well. Six days you shall work, and the seventh you'll stop, you'll lay it down, and you'll rest. As evidence, it's not by my hands, is it? I didn't do anything today, and I still ate. And one in seven years, you don't sow your crops. What do you know? You still eat. And manna fell from heaven every day for 40 years. And what do you know? They still ate. Evidenced in your life, the, the, the cycle of the one in seven is intended to show us something. God gives. We don't make. It is the very nature of God to be generous and open-handed. So when we come to think about some sort of, of a requirement about how we handle our money, there's a lot at stake in it. Yes, of course, obviously, what's at stake is the alleviation of need. Yes. But more than that, testimony to the character of God is tied to this. We walk around and we carry the name Christian, Christ. We are attached in some way to, to this church, to God. We carry that out with us. And if we close our hands and close our hearts, what do we say about Him? As we break the eighth and the fourth commandment, we say, God's a miser. He doesn't give. He's not gracious. And if you want anything, you better go get it yourself. Testimony to the nature of God is at stake if we, or if we don't, behave generously towards others. Alleviation of need, testimony to the character of God, also in your own heart, opportunity to trust Him. You take money and you put it in somebody else's pocket, you're taking a little bit of a risk, aren't you? I can do without that. Well, most of us don't take any risk because we don't actually put anything in anybody else's pocket that we're not sure we don't actually need. But if we were to give like he means us to give, what's your need? I'll give to meet that need. If we were to do that, then we might actually take a risk and move it out of my pocket into yours and have to stand here and say, I need you to provide for me tomorrow, God. And we would find him to do it and your faith would grow. There's a lot at stake in your generosity with your money. So how are you at being generous with others according to their need? And I underline their need. Don't start in the place of, what do I have to give? Of course, you can't give what you don't have. But many of us have even when we don't think we do. And if you start in this place of what do I have, you, how you start working this through in your mind is, my retirement account has taken a beating over the last year and a half. It's come back a little bit recently, but I seriously need to put some money into that for the sake of my, my future, my family's future. So I don't have this money to give. It's got to go there. Or you start with, I'm going to have to replace my car next year. So I better set aside some money to do that. I don't have this money to give. You begin to think like, 
What do I have need for? And you find I don't have any money to give. Start in the other place, brother, where verse 8 starts. Brother, sister, what's your need? And when you hear somebody say to you, true, I won't name names, of course, but true, specific things. What's my need? I have a $4,000 medical bill and $87 in the bank. That's my need. Oh, maybe I can make the car last a little longer. What's your need, brother? Well, my need is I've been unemployed for a year and I've been working underemployed for that whole time and we are out of money. I'm working full time and I cannot pay the bills. We are out of money. I don't know what we're going to do. You start in that place. What is your need? Whatever it may be. Verse 8. And it will cast a different perspective on your checkbook in front of you. So how are you at being generous with others according to their need? How are you, church? We can't ask this at the dollar level because some of us fall woefully short of this while writing a $500 check to somebody. Because you could have given thousands. And some of us live this out to the hilt while giving $5 because you don't have anything. You can't ask this at a dollar level. Well, I give this amount, so I'm okay. Heart level. Is your heart hardened or is it soft towards your brother according to his or her need? Which is it? Obviously, I have no idea. But the requirement's clear enough. Backwards and forwards, positively and negatively, soft heart, open hands, Give what they need. Man, that's hard. Perhaps not for some of us. Uh, there are some here I know that you, you give and you give and you give and you give. But for most of us, that is an incredibly high bar. But it is clearly His requirement. And he says that this, that this poor brother who goes in need when we don't meet it has a case against us before God. They didn't give to me out of their abundance. I know. And I'm going to hold them accountable for it. We stand, we sit under something here. You have to realize this and think it through. He requires something of your heart and then of your hands. He expects something and He also will enable it. Which takes us to the second point. And we need this enabling. Because if somebody like me talks to somebody's like you and just says this sort of thing the, the most that can happen apart from the second point is I could beat you up with it perhaps or, or you could tune me out and, and, and then I wouldn't beat you up with it but some way there would be a conflict here and maybe some guilt inducing but that's the most that's going to come of it if we don't have the second point but of course as you sit here don't you want to be aligned with what God says here? Don't you want to be a part of this kind of a community? 
Not just as the receiver of that, but as the giver of that. Don't you want that somewhere inside? Here's what God has done to make that possible. Second point. Instead, as, as a command, as it is in the book of Ephesians, be filled by the Spirit in order to become generous as God requires. Be filled by the Spirit, which means be controlled and directed in your heart. Have the Spirit of God exerting the controlling dominant influence on your heart if you want to become this kind of person. Now, I'm going to unpack this from Deuteronomy 15, which some of us might be saying, where's the Holy Spirit in that? I don't, I didn't recall. He's not mentioned there. But we're going to get there because that's the answer. Be filled by the Spirit. Deuteronomy does something that's going to connect to the Spirit in a moment, but we need to notice the pattern of Deuteronomy. God works like this all the time. All the time. He commands, and He reasons. Woos is a word I like to use. He doesn't just, as a king issuing an edict, say, this is what you must do. He also helps us get there. By working it through with us. So we can, we can look at verse 10. After the lengthy working through of the command, the text says, Because for this, the Lord will bless you in all you do. What is that? That's reasoning. Wooing. You might even say incentivizing. Because, here's what you have to do. Because for this... The Lord will bless you in all that you do. Or at the end of 14 and on into 15, as he's commanding them how to deal with their former slaves and set them free, he points them at something. Furnish them liberally as the Lord your God has blessed you. That's how you'll give to them. So you're going to have, from the hand of God, you're going to have stuff to give to other people. And didn't I, in fact, bring you out of slavery in Egypt? You were a slave. I set you free and plopped you down in this tremendous land of abundance. I did that, didn't I? And I'll keep you here, in verse 18, and bless you in all of this. He's discussing something with them. Reasoning with them. does this throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But, but clearly, the most sustained incentive is in verses 4 to 6. There will be no poor among you. You walk with me, you follow me, I'll bless you abundantly. There will be no poor among you and I will make you a powerful nation. He's, he's not saying you can't borrow. He's saying you won't need to borrow. They're going to have to borrow from you. You're going to have all the money. You won't be a borrowing nation. You'll be a lending nation when I bless you because you've walked with me. You'll be a powerful nation. You're going to be on top of the situation, the political situation, the economic situation. That's a tremendous incentive. So we're meant to sit there and think, oh, do I want to be that kind of a person, that kind of a people, to live in that kind of a society? Oh, follow God. Obey Him. Be generous with those. He's reasoning with us. Incentivizing. Pointing back at what He has done in the past. Promising to do more in the future. And you might expect... Seeing that kind of reasoning going on, that there would have been some follow-through. 
that the people would have responded and thought that through and said, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's do this. But it didn't happen. Keep reading through the Old Testament. You read into the prophets, you realize Israel did not become this kind of society. You could jot down Isaiah 58 and read that later. God chastises them there for these kinds of issues in two different places. Obeying a religious fast while ripping off your brother. Injustice. Watching the naked brother go unclothed while fasting and worshiping. I'm sick of that, says God. Israel did not become that kind of a people because something else other than just pure reasoning needed to happen with them. Something that the prophet Ezekiel describes as taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, giving them his spirit to move them to follow his decrees. God had to do something else in the heart here, and that's what he did at Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is the, is the moment in time when the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the, the one God, God the Holy Spirit, is poured out in a flood onto the covenant community, onto the people of God. Holy Spirit's always been around from the very first page of the Bible, but He comes to His people on earth in a flood in a new and, and remarkable power at Pentecost. And what happens is that the people of God are changed. They become a community that is just remarkable, giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And how they are described is really interesting. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and gave the money to the apostles to distribute to each as any had need. That's Deuteronomy 15 coming to pass in Acts 4. He quotes one verse from our chapter and alludes to another one with a twist. Not just lending to any as has need, giving it away. People in Acts say, I so much have a mind that is open to you and is so unconcerned about when am I going to get this back that I don't even loan it. I just give it. There will be no needy persons becomes there were none. What's changed? Well, those people are obviously smarter. That's not it. What changed? The Spirit was poured out. God, the Holy Spirit, fell in power on the, the thousands of people in the church. They were filled with the Spirit. It means directed and controlled by the Spirit. And what happened was how they saw everything was changed. So God still reasons with them. I mean, this is still their Bible. They're still going to the Scriptures and reading them. And do not think for a moment that when Luke write Acts, writes Acts, that he accidentally quotes Deuteronomy 15. 
He deliberately quotes it to make the connection in our minds. They are reading Deuteronomy 15 and now they are doing it because the Spirit has moved in. The Spirit of God picks up the argument from Deuteronomy 15, speaks it to us, and the difference is now we're persuaded by it. We see God as an abundant, blessing, open-hearted, open-handed God. We see these other people as brothers, not debtors, people who owe us stuff, but brothers. We see their need and are moved by it. We understand God's promise, I will provide for you. We believe it and so we give away. That's what happens in the book of Acts. When the Spirit comes upon the church, He persuades them of something. Love for brothers, love for others. He persuades them of something. The beauty of Christ. The sufficiency of God. He reminds them to use our passage again from Deuteronomy, he reminds them, okay, think about this, Christian. There is one perfect brother who seeing your poverty, himself gave you everything he had according to your need. He opened not just his hands, He stretched out His arms and gave you everything so that by His poverty you might become rich. Do you not love Him? Have you not found Him wonderful? Do you not want to put your ear against the door and become His servant forever? He has been so good to you. Yes? Then follow Him. Give yourself first to the Lord and He'll give you everything else including that poor brother right there who needs the money I put in your pocket. The Spirit says that. I mean, I can say that to you. You can hear it, understand it's in English. But the Spirit, when the Spirit says that, it pierces into you and you say, that is true. God, make me like that. May He move on you right now and make you like that. He has canceled all of your debt. Not just laid it down, removed it. It's gone. All you experience from Him is an open heart and an open hand, and He sends you out to be that yourself. Blessers of others in His name. May the Spirit of God convince you of that at this very moment and open your hands. But He has to convince you in your heart first. I do not want you to write a slightly larger check next week. Or or to go out and, and put some money in somebody's mailbox this week who you know needs it. Don't do that. Unless you want to do that. Then bless God and bless them. May He move on you and change you how you see your resources. They're not yours. They've come from a a generous God to you. Think about this. Why didn't He just count up Christians, divide all the money evenly? One billion, let's divide three billion by one billion, everybody gets three dollars. Why did He count 
one billion Christians or however many there are and say, I'm going to give 2.9 billion of that to you four and leave the rest of them without anything. Why do you do that? To create an opportunity here. For both of us to trust God, for His name to be testified to as we give this stuff away, for us to show that our God is not our gold, but our God is God. If He divvies it all up, three each, all that's lost. There's no opportunity. Something wonderful that He has made possible here. To give the opportunity for giving. Generosity. May the Spirit move in your heart and convince you of that right now. What it all boils down to, Christian, then, is be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who takes the, the truth of the Word and makes it live in your heart. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. We talked about that some weeks back. How do you do that? You say, God, have your way with me. You submit to Him and pray, God, take me, run through my mind and make it your home. He must do it. You can't make it happen. But you cooperate with it by stepping towards Him and opening your hands. Have me. You read the argument and you think it through and say, Spirit, convince me of this. And He may move in even as you read it and convince you of it. That's Him filling you. Convincing you of the Scripture. You don't do it separate from the Scripture. You do it with the Scripture. Lord, I see there that in this you will bless me. I want to walk with you in obedience. Convince me of that. When the Spirit of God controls your mind, He takes the message, the truth, and makes it real to you. He makes Jesus real to you, the gospel real to you, your brotherhood real to you, which is what you need. So be filled with the Spirit. Submit yourself to Him. If you want to be the generous person that God expects, that's how He enables what He expects in His people. I so much want us, it's all like Evangelical Free Church, and if, and if you're a visitor here today, if you're, if you're new, that's great. I'd love you to be a part of this too, but I'm talking to those who are the church right now. I so much want us who are the church to actually be the church. To not play at it. It does nobody any good. It, it doesn't. Why bother playing at it? If you, if you want to play at it, find somewhere else to play, please. I don't mean that to tell you to go away. I mean to tell you, I mean that to tell you to change. Stay and don't play. Be what He means you to be. Not because you're going to suck it up and do it this time, but because you're going to open yourself to God and say, make me who you want me to be. And in this case, right here, I see what you want me to be is somebody who is generous with others. Would we be that kind of people with the congregation here and with others 
Those who you rub shoulders with. Neighbors, co-workers, people that you know. You would testify to them about a generous God. You would help them. You would bless them. You would learn to trust God more yourself. Can you imagine being in a community like that where there are no poor among you and the blessing of God rests on us? One day, that's going to be perf- that ideal is going to be perfectly realized. There, there's a world coming in which there is none of that loss. There is no shortage. There is no suffering. There is no pain. There's no poverty. There's none of that. But right now, verse 11, there is always going to be poverty in the land. And we respond to it in ways that alleviate it. Case by case by case by case by case. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a community like that? So submit yourself to God and cry out for His Spirit to control you and make you what He wants you to be. God expects and by His Spirit in you enables you and us to be a generous people. Go to Him in prayer right now and consider. What what does this mean for you? I have no idea what it means for you specifically. But ask Him. Take a couple minutes and pray right now as we move towards communion. I'll close this in a minute or two and and we'll begin communion. But ask Him, what, what do you want from me in this, Lord? Pray and I'll close this in a minute. Father, I you would speak to us in convicting and in confirming and in comforting ways to remind us of your nearness to us, of your desire to 
be a generous blessing, God, with us and of your desire for us to be that way with others. Lord, where my brothers and sisters here have particular needs or or issues that they face, some here have financial need and some have the need to give finances away. I pray that you would make clear to each of us what and how and when and to whom and from where. Have your way in our hearts and have your way in our church. Lord, my human words are feeble and will fall dead unless your spirit takes them and carries them home into the heart of your people. And so I pray that you would do that and that you would make us, this congregation, a people pleasing to you. For your glory, for the good of your church, and for the good of, I I pray, other people who are not yet a part of the church, but need to know a gracious and generous God. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.